Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today, I'm joined by Stefan Bate. Welcome, Stefan. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Arden. So uh, glad to be here with you today. I am excited to have you on because I particularly like the title, which is Recovery is a Family Affair. Um, For our listeners and our viewers, just a little bit of background on Stefan. Stefan is the Chief Clinical Officer at Jay Walker Lodge. Gosh, Stefan, you've had an interesting career. You have your degree in applied psychology from Regis University and are a licensed addictions counselor, um, chief clinical officer at Jay Walker Lodge, but you also have a background in banking. Um, and it was really in your own treatment experience, it sounds like that you became interested in pursuing a career in this area. So I'm hoping to get into all sorts of different questions. And we're going to start from a, a fairly dark place and hopefully get into a more uplifting one by the end of the show. Um, but my first question is really about about your own personal journey? And was there ever a time in your personal journey that you just thought the idea of recovery was not going to happen or was impossible? Mm. Oh, you bet. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, um, you know, I'm a therapist by training, so I I like dark places. We can, we can go there, Arden. Um, Yeah, you bet. You know, my story, um, as many people, you know, recovery was not a linear trajectory for me. It wasn't sort of this place where I got to where it was. I decided that I wanted to be sober, made that decision, and then was, you know, sober forever and ever after that. Uh, It took me quite a while. So um, I ended up, uh, I'm also an alumni of Jay Walker Lodge. So that that's, you know, my title is chief clinical officer, but I think my more important title is is alumnus. So Jay Walker was my fourth treatment episode, my fourth inpatient treatment episode. And um, after my third treatment episode and subsequent relapses, there was definitely a period of time where I, I felt like this was never going to happen for me. In fact, I started treatment at Jay Walker Lodge, not from this place of hopeful excitement or inspiration or motivation. I really started my journey from a place of total hopelessness and a real understanding that um, I probably wasn't going to ever get this. And that that was really what I would consider to be my my absolute bottom was this place of total hopelessness of, of completely uh, believing that uh, I was probably never going to get long-term recovery. So you know, almost uh, 16 years, <laughs> almost 16 years later, I'm so glad that was uh, that wasn't true. I think all of us are glad it wasn't true. You know, are there things that you can point to in your career that you say, had I not gotten sober, these things wouldn't have been possible? Oh, sure. I mean, um, I mean, recovery, recovery is one of those things. I, I think it's such a, a a beautiful process because when we, especially early on, we think, well, I'm an incredible amount of distress and suffering in my life and I'm hurting myself. Uh, I'm hurting the people that I love. I'm losing opportunities. All these consequences are mounting. And it's this feeling of if I could just, you know, get from 
this major period of distress, you know, negative 10, right on the scale, I'm, I'm, I'm 10 under, uh, if I could just get to break even, if I could just go from distressed to not distressed, that would be good. Uh, and I would take that. But the beautiful part about recovery and, and definitely is experienced in my life is you go from this place of negative 10 to zero, but you keep working this thing and you keep uh, living this life and this lifestyle of recovery. And the next thing you know, you're up one and then you're up two and you're up five. And for me, that uh, I can attribute kind of every good thing in my life to the fact that I'm in recovery. So that's from the relationship that I have with my wife, uh, who's um, she preceded me into Al-Anon uh, by, you know, about three months. She likes to remind me of that on her Al-Anon birthday. Uh, her <laughs> Al-Anon date is about three months before my sobriety date. So our relationship was not possible. In fact, it, it had ended by the time I got into recovery. So we were able to get back together and then have a relationship, get married, have children, you know, that the whole thing was only possible because of recovery. Um, my career, definitely, um, you know, even even my, my first career in banking was something that I had lost in my addiction, but was able to get back into because of recovery, relationships, authentic friendships, my ability to be a son. Um, several years ago, I was able to help my father get into recovery. So uh, just all of those things, none of it would have been possible without my recovery. And I, I like to say, you know, every problem I have in my life right now is a direct result of actually some blessing or some prompt, you know, one of the promises mm -hmm. of recovery coming true in my life. I really don't have, you know, significant problems in my life. I, I have life that I get to take care of um, because I, I have the actual, the opportunity to have some of these problems in life. So, Stefan, you know, I, one of the things I didn't mention when I opened the podcast is the good work that Jay Walker does as a 12-step immersion program with males in recovery. And you already mentioned the term rock bottom. You know, I know that we see mm. some pretty extreme cases of rock bottom at our firm. I'm curious what your experience has been with people hitting rock bottoms in those extreme circumstances. And, and did you see those folks recover? Could you give us a couple examples of cases like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that back. And because um, I did in my story, I mentioned, you know, coming to Jay Walker and hitting my absolute bottom or my last bottom. And um, I love this discussion of bottoms, because for me, I think most of the time when people talk about bottoms, they're really thinking about material consequences, things like, you know, they've lost jobs or relationships, or they might have uh, legal issues or financial issues, things like that. Those are, are significant and those consequences can often be helpful in motivating someone to seek treatment. But when I really think about um, the last bottom for anyone, despite you know the, the occurrence of those material consequences, they may or may not be there, it's really an emotional and a spiritual bottom. And that was my case. My you know, last bottom wasn't, um, it wasn't nearly the lowest I'd gone in terms of consequences. I had been in worse financial situations. I had been in worse employment situations, things like that. But my bottom at the end was really about this deep understanding that there was uh, absolutely no way I of my own kind of resources, my own will by myself, by myself 
I was not going to be able to solve this problem and that there was nothing that I could do about it. Um, and that, you know, to me, that's, you know, there's all these technical terms in recovery. Powerlessness is one of them. And that's what powerlessness really, really means in terms of, you know, the addiction and recovery 12-step world is that I of myself, without help, my unaided will, I, I lack sufficient force, and I'm not going to be able to handle my addiction. And that's where I really got to this place of hopelessness. Um, but really, it was incredibly powerful, because what that did is it allowed me to get beyond all of the bias that I'd had, all of the preconceived notions I'd had, all of the resistance I'd had, not just to the 12 steps, but just to, to, to help in general, to therapy in general. It allowed me to move beyond all of those and really just start doing what um, people had asked of me and what people had offered to me, both professionals and therapists, but also people in the 12-step uh, program, uh, all of the things that they had uh, to offer me. So it, it really allowed me to take advantage of those things and then and then really find recovery. So we see that all the time at Jay Walker. Um, Jay Walker, you know, our niche or what we're really known for is working with men that have had multiple previous treatment attempts. So these are men, um, average age of 28, that have been to three to seven previous treatment experiences. So they have gone in and out of treatment. They've, they've often done well in treatment, but like myself, they've really struggled to catch fire in recovery. And so one of the things that we say here is that a, a treatment episode doesn't necessarily yield a successful recovery experience. And so that's our goal in our niche is to, to help men uh, find um, not just this bottom and, and really make their bottom their last bottom, but also to take a hold of a recovery experience that's going to propel them into long-term recovery, not just keep this cycle of, of kind of relapse treatment, relapse treatment, you know, going and going and going. I love the philosophy that you're describing, Stefan. I guess one of my questions would be, because we get this from families all the time, is there a triggering event? Is there something that gets that person when they're at Jay Walker to say, gosh, I've tried this five times and now on my sixth try, I'm going to take this more seriously. Like what gets the clients that you yeah. receive at the door when they've been through this many attempts? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, our philosophy is a little different. So at Jay Walker, our model is called the open community model of care. And so one of the things that we do here is we don't leverage containment as a strategy to help people propel themselves into recovery. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, often a treatment experience is, is an experience of somebody getting um, sort of removed from their life, where they, wherever they are, they're plucked out of their life, they're put into a safe, uh, secure timeout, um, and they're really put inside of, you know, four walls or on a campus of a treatment center, and they're going through this process of, of learning about addiction and learning about coping strategies and, and decreasing triggers and things like that, but it's done inside of those walls or on that campus. And and the folks that are there, the clients, the patients, um, they're, they're really, they're staying there, right? And, and their experience is with the milieu that's there, with the counseling staff that's there, but they're not really uh, moving out into the world at all. They don't have a lot of access of community. What Jaywalker, despite the fact that our clients are what you would maybe call, you know, quote unquote, treatment resistant or chronic relapsers, um, what we're doing is not containing them inside of our buildings. In fact, our, our buildings, our campus, on Main Street, 
Carbondale Co. And our clients are outside of our buildings as much as they're inside of our buildings. So one of the things that we're doing is trying to bring the experience of recovery into treatment. Uh, we're bringing it into the front door of our building and we're having our clients in community, in recovery, experiencing the lived experience of recovery in community from day one. What that does for our guys is um, it gives them a, a really positive experience of what life could look and feel like. So while relapse prevention is something that's very important that we focus on, uh, we really balance that with what we call recovery promotion. Um, so we have some sayings around Jay Walker, lots of one-liners, but one of them is that recovery is not a consequence of your addiction, but it's a forward-looking promise of your future recovery. So things like fun, inclusion, uh, community connection, passion, authentic relationships, um, all of those things are front and center on our treatment plans, just like things like identifying triggers and, and uh, hurdles for relapse and learning all those coping skills. Those are there too. But uh, we have to show our clients and not just talk about it, but actually give them a real experience of what joy in recovery will look and feel like um, I think that is a big difference for folks that have really struggled to connect to recovery. Um, our clients, most of them, because of the amount of treatment they've had, they are experts in treatment. You know, they are the clients, they're probably your favorite clients and your most frustrating clients at the same time. You know, they could recite the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. They could lead your, you know, DBT skills group. Um, they're the junior, junior counselor in the group. And they just, they cannot stay sober once they're outside of structured treatment. Um, so those are our guys. And, and, and that was me, right? I was, I got an A in every treatment I'd ever gone through. I'm a, I'm a people pleaser by heart. I like to make sure that, you know, the, do the teachers proud. You know, I would get an A in that class. Um, but I had no idea the skill sets of staying sober in community are different than the skill sets of, of maintaining abstinence and navigating your way through a contained treatment episode. And it's hard, I think, for a lot of times for families and parents to understand that there's some differences there. Um, so that's the big thing. You know, our, our, our clients, our men are um, things like our outdoor activities, right? We uh, are here in the Rocky Mountains on the western slope of Colorado, about 30 miles from Aspen, and we are outdoors uh, in the summer right now, we are rock climbing, mountain biking, hiking, we're on the rivers, we're fishing, we're on the lakes, paddle boarding, um, even just uh, other things that, that are everyday things like our, our boys are playing pickleball, they're playing golf, they're playing basketball. We have them outside doing transformative outdoor, uh, having getting transformative outdoor experiences six days a week. And they're doing that with their friends, with their peers. So they're creating these really deep relationships that are built partially on the vulnerability that happens in the clinical groups, but they're also built on the experience of playing together, of having fun together. Our men are bonding. You know, men bond really on the field of battle and the field of play, right? And, and that's what our boys are doing. They're, they're learning how to do that in the group room with each other, but then also um, out, out in nature and, and playing with each other. So they're getting that full human relationship together. Well, you see me smiling ear to ear because it's music yeah. to, to my ears. I, I feel like my brother was in exactly the category that you're discussing. And I think finding a way to make recovery 
for lack of a better term, sexy at 26 is a tough yep. road, which is about the age where the rubber hit the road for him. And just what you're describing is it, he didn't go to Jay Walker, unfortunately, but he had to find a similar path in a different setting. Um, but it took a long yeah. time. And so the idea that clients can be exposed to it, I think is great. Um, you know, one thing I, I think all of us know that our podcast and our clientele tends to be affluent individuals. And I do mm -hmm. think just given what you're describing, people who are on their sixth, seventh treatment, we know how much treatment costs in the US and we know how little is covered by insurance. I guess my question is, I'm presuming you've had exposure to cases like this. You know, what do you think for affluent individuals is missing in the field, both on the residential and even on the outpatient side? Gosh, what a great question. What's missing? Well, I think, I think what's interesting for, and you're right, those are my clientele, you know, the majority of the clients at Jay Walker Lodge are coming from affluent families. Um, I think what, you know, there's often things that are a blessing and a curse, right? There's two sides to a sword. And, and for affluent families, um, the, the blessing are the amount of resources they can bring to bear for treatment episode or multiple treatment episodes, right? They have because uh, third-party payers are, are so unwilling to pay for long-term treatment, you know, these families have the resources to um, put their, their loved ones into treatment for, for whatever time is necessary. And so that's amazing. Um, the difficult part of that is often because of the financial resources of the family, our clients are kept from experiencing a lot of the natural consequences that they would experience had they had they not have access to those resources. So what happens is those bottoms that we talked about earlier, they kept getting they kept getting lower and lower and lower because earlier bottoms that might have been sufficient um, don't have they're not necessarily realized. Um, so often with these affluent families, sometimes the bottoms that are going to matter are are really low and really severe bottoms. Um, so I think, you know, we talk about that in a lot of different ways. You know, the big, you know, the, the nasty, dirty E word is thrown around um, with enabling. Uh, codependency is thrown around. You know, I don't necessarily look at it quite like that. What I see are parents that are terrified, that love their children, that will do anything at their disposal to help their children. Um, that isn't any different for, for affluent families as it is for families that don't have those means. The difference is, is what's at their disposal is so much greater. So they're going to use what's at their disposal. Um, you know, we talk a lot about uh, our clients and this population of clients as being entitled. Um, the other thing that I think is missing is entitlement sometimes might manifest in, a, in an ugly way or it might look like um, clients think that they deserve more or they're better than. Uh, I don't see it that way. With the men that I've worked with, what I see is you sort of scratch the surface of that entitlement, and what you find is is really learned helplessness and a deep set of, of shame beliefs around their abilities and, and capabilities in the world. So you get underneath of that entitlement, and what you find is our men don't think that they're going to be capable of taking care of themselves, of being responsible for themselves, of navigating the challenges of everyday living. And, and often um, part of the reason is because they've come from a family system where a lot of those things have been taken care of for them. And as they've gotten sicker and sicker and deeper and deeper into their addiction, um, their parents who love them and care for them are trying very hard 
to help them uh, have, have kind of moved in more, right? And done more and done more and done more. So by the time they get to me, there's this real fear, not only am I going to get sober and stay sober, but what happens when I get sober? Am I now going mm -hmm. to have to take care of myself? Am I going to be responsible for myself? And that is, that is equally terrifying for my clients. Um, the addiction piece is, is challenging and there's bottoms there. But the thought of now that I'm sober and I'm going to be expected to, you know, be my own man um, is, is, is a, it's an ex existential kind of issue that most of my clients have to go through. So I, I think that's a piece that's missing. I, I also would say there's a lot of I, I in that's missing for these folks. Um, when I look at, uh, you know, people that come from means, people that have affluence, it's really its own um, – you need to have some cultural competency uh, with those folks. And, and a lot of providers don't necessarily have that. And so they don't have um, an, a level of empathy and compassion that's really needed or, or cultural awareness of these group of folks that's really needed not just to treat um, the identified patient, but also to treat the family system. So I think that's something that is, is often missing in the, in the vast majority of the field is, is, a real understanding of the issues that go with um, coming from affluence, you know, being someone of means. I don't know if you would agree with any or all of that burden. But, yeah. I, I agree with all of it. I mean, it's what, again, smiling from ear to ear because I'm thinking how well the philosophies align. And I do think, and you mentioned yeah. the, the big E word, um, Diana Clark, who's our chief clinical officer, likes to use the word protecting behaviors because she thinks that word yeah. enabling is just so shaming for families. And in many cases, I always say addiction and in, even in my own family system causes parents to have to stretch the very things they've been doing for 20, 30 years, which is trying to protect their loved ones from harm in the world, trying to protect them against their own, um, you know, their own behaviors if, they, if they're harmful. And in many of these cases, it's not to say you want to peel back all of that. You certainly want the family's engagement and treatment, but there's a difference in my opinion with people who have an addiction issue with what they ask for and what they need. And that's a, a, a really challenging thing, particularly for that very smart young man, which was again, the story of my brother who could present very credibly. I'm ready to do outpatient. I don't need yep. another inpatient center. I have this under control and families, including my parents wanted to believe that. So I, I totally agree with what you've said. I love what you just said because I think it's so important because they can, they can present so well. Right. And, and, um, most of my clients are incredibly articulate. Um, so it's easy to, um, you know, kind of get lost and, and think that, that folks are better than they really are because of how they can present. And I think that's another difference with um, this population of client and family is their ability to look polished in a certain way and their, their ability to present a front. I mean, uh, most people with addictions learn how to become those chameleons and present fronts. But I think the way that um, this population of, of people can do it is, is even more so. Um, yeah. Absolutely. 
on a follow-up question related to families, what have you done in circumstances where a family just lacks very basic education? They either think, you know, we've seen family systems that come from generational uh, addiction and those families may struggle with, well, he drinks a little too much, he just needs to stop it. Um, or not understanding that addiction is a disease that's gonna need to be treated over the long term. And I know yours is a long-term model. How have you worked with families where their conception of what their young person's or what their child's recovery is gonna look like is very unrealistic given the circumstances? Yeah, I think our families need a lot of support um, so, you know, at Jay Walker, one of the, we do it in many different ways, but uh, first and foremost, our, our counselors have very low caseloads. Part of the reason that the caseloads are so low is because all of our counselors are working with those families weekly, um, doing uh, case management, but also educating, helping, helping them to understand what boundaries uh, need to look like, uh, what works for their family, what doesn't work for their family. You know, there is no you know, baseline kind of set of fundamental boundaries that every single family should have. They're all different based on where the family's been and where they're going, what their goals are, what their level of educational, you know, needs are, uh, where their willingness is. Um, <clears throat> and I think, you know, our counselors meet the families where they're at. Um, the other thing that we do is we have weekly family support groups. So all of our, our families are, are getting on these weekly calls. They're working with uh, one, of our, one of our counselors who's a family um, support counselor. And he's also providing a lot of that education, but he's creating an environment where these families get to talk to each other weekly um, and, and, and share experience, strength, and hope with each other. Um, some of our families have had their loved one at Jay Walker for six months, and some of those families, uh, their loved one got here last week. So um, those, uh, those family process groups are really important. Um, and then uh, every five weeks, we're doing a multi-day family program. Families, when they come here, they often say, well, when is that going to happen? When are we going to start you know, having productive sessions? Is that week two? Is that week three? Well, again, all clients and all families are different, and, and where they've been is different. So um, sometimes that starts early and sometimes it starts later, but part of the beauty of having a really long-term continuum of care is you don't have to rush and force those types of things. Um, so sometimes families are ready at that three-week mark, and sometimes the you know, best good, the highest good for the families and their clients is to keep them separated for several months before starting yeah. to do that work. So, yeah. I love the depth of resources you have as well as the customized approach because I think both are important um, and particularly for the reasons you said. Each family has a different level of trauma they've experienced based on this person's addiction and they're going to be at different levels of readiness and sometimes just interacting with other families to get a normalized experience, that's going to be the most powerful thing. In other cases, doing some individual or, or group work with the individual or what we call the identified patient is the is the next step to make sure the family's on the same page uh you've been a really thoughtful guest today i want to end the podcast with an opportunity for you to think about if someone is in active addiction and is considering getting into recovery but is really on the fence what would you tell them yeah oh what i would say is um i know that uh it's scary and and one of the hardest things about um initiating recovery and if you're listening you're in this spot you know i got to this place in my addiction where uh 
both of these things were true at the same time. I desperately wanted to stop using, and I didn't think that there was any way that I was ever going to be able to stop using. Um, and, and all of these reservations I had, all of these reasons for why I could never stop and it wouldn't work, and that I needed alcohol and drugs, um, all of them turned out to not be true. And so what I would say is if you're at that place um, and you're, you're at this point where uh, you can't simply think about taking a step forward while at the same time it's become impossible to stay where you are, um, reach out, ask for help, find that trust, find that faith inside, um, and take a step. And what you'll learn is that one step turns into two, which turns into ten, which turns into a life that's absolutely beyond your wildest dreams. Um, and it's, I know is when you're in active addiction, it's really hard to hear that. And it sounds fake, and it sounds like a whole lot of BS. Um, and, and coming from someone who, especially in active addiction, was a skeptic, I can promise you that's where you'll find yourself, and, and you can come join all of us on this side. So, yeah. Thank you, Stefan. I really appreciate It's great. I think it's a great way to end. I think it's always good to end on an uplifting note. Uh, thank you so much for your participation today. Thank you to all of our listeners and our viewers on uh, Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. If you're so inclined, please give us a positive review. And thanks so much. We look forward to you joining on the next episode. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.